government relations advocate. Correct. Sharon Sanders. No, Swanson. Yeah, Samson. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the City Voice podcast, where we discuss issues that are important to Washington cities. We have a special edition of the podcast this afternoon, and I'm very glad to have two special guests with us from the Washington State Healthcare Authority, uh, Jessica and Tony. Jessica, can you introduce yourself? Hi, everybody. This is Jessica Belos. I am your Washington State Opiate Treatment Authority. And that is, again, just a really scary sounding title (laughs) that means that I pretty much my role, each state has an individual who is responsible for, um, I guess, oversight over all opiate treatment that's done with an opiate medication. And that is my role for Washington State. Thank you. Welcome, Jessica. Tony? Yeah, hello. My name is uh, Tony Walton. I'm the Criminal Justice Behavioral Health Administrator uh, with the Washington State Healthcare Authority. I'm basically um, kind of tasked with uh, uh, providing assistance anytime there's substance use disorder um, issues uh, with the criminal justice system or there's an intersection with individuals that are incarcerated uh, where they might benefit more from treatment as opposed to punishment. Okay. Now, um, you use the term behavioral health issue. What does that term mean and, and what is the overlap between that and the idea of addiction that we often hear about? Sure. So behavioral health is a term that we're starting to use more and more to refer to um, different types of issues that are impacting individuals' thinking and behavior. So this would be substance use disorders, mental health disorders, and then problem and pathological gambling. And then also, as we're talking about addiction, one of the things you may notice is that um, Tony and I are going to be referring to substance use disorders as opposed to addiction. Because, you know, language is so important in how we discuss and frame things. And as we are more and more learning that, again, substance use disorders are medical conditions, that um, we want to refer to them like we would with other types of medical conditions. So, again, we're starting to use substance use disorder as opposed to addiction. Okay, great. Now, as we're uh, trying to get a picture of your roles and and how you're uh, serving Washington in those two different roles, can you tell us just briefly about um, kind of what a a day is like in in your office and and how your roles intersect? Yeah, so um, uh, obviously now during this time of the year, legislative session has a high priority on uh, day-to-day operations. Um, In general, my primary uh, task is with a a state appropriation made called the Criminal Justice Treatment Account. Um, It's funding that's been appropriated by the state since 2002, and um, I am the administrator of those funds, so I deal with contracting, data analysis, pretty much everything to do with making sure that those funds are both allocated to all the counties in the state, as well as, uh, you know, they're used to meet the needs of the population that they're intended to be used for. Okay, gotcha. And um, I'll ask simply out of ignorance, does that um, does that role with uh, the important administrative things that you're accomplishing, does it put you in direct contact with the um, with the folks who are who are suffering from these disorders? Um, I do have the opportunity of doing uh, site visits, and I've visited um, several jails around the state, um, and I have met with individuals that are incarcerated and talked to them about their specific experiences, both in the criminal justice and legal system, as well as some of the transitions between jails, community behavioral health agencies, home. 
Great. Thank you. Well, I know we'll, we'll have some questions later on about some of those experiences. What about you, Jessica? Sure. Um, my role with the state, I'm currently, um, I guess I would describe it as seated in a division within Healthcare Authority where we actually help set clinical policy for the entire state of Washington and related to Medicaid. And then again, with my current role, I actually have state and federal oversight over all of our state's um, licensed opiate treatment programs. These are specifically uh, licensed behavioral health agencies where medications for the treatment of opiate use disorder are being actually dispensed from the facilities as opposed to a client getting a prescription from their doctor's office and then filling it at a local pharmacy. Um, so I have a really big um, opportunity every day to really work with everyone from clients, um, stakeholders across Washington, including treatment programs, um, local jurisdictions, including cities, counties, and tribes, um, really being able to help provide technical assistance for anyone who wants to learn more information about both opiate use disorder, substance use treatment, as well as um, some of the effective treatments that are available out there for opiate use disorder. Okay, great. Well, this is going to be a little bit of a personal question. So, you know, answer, answer at your discretion. But um, I'm curious to know what got both of you interested in this issue. How did you find yourself in the roles that you're in? Um, I can start with that. Um, I actually, uh, native of Arizona, and the opioid epidemic hit Arizona State um, about probably 10 years before it made its way up to the Northwest. When I was in high school, I had, um, there was actually news articles about the prevalence of heroin in the um, Scottsdale, Arizona high schools. And I've actually had several friends who have had an accidental overdose death um, that I went to high school and college with. So um, that kind of led to me working more in the criminal justice system as a whole and uh, getting a degree in justice studies and trying to learn more about how um, both we have these laws in place that um, punish an individual for essentially having a disease. Um, a substance use disorder isn't disease. And when somebody's using an illicit substance such as heroin or cocaine or methamphetamine, they're essentially treating their substance use disorder, but yet we treat it differently because it's criminalized. Um, so a lot of my background is in working in the court system, therapeutic courts such as mental health court, drug courts, as well as um, applying research from school uh, to those situations. Okay, very interesting. And then for myself, um, I'm actually a licensed mental health counselor and substance use counselor. But like Tony, I'm not a, a, I'm not originally from Washington. I actually, uh, my hometown is um, somewhere along the Rust Belt in New York State. Um, I grew up in Niagara Falls, New York. It's a city around the size of Olympia. And really, um, there, this community has struggled with many issues over time. Again, we struggle with a loss of industry and jobs, and then a shrinking population, ever-shrinking tax base. But um, we had several different basically bad actor physicians who were living in our town, including one individual who at one point was serving over 8,000 clients, more than any other doctor in New York State. And they were um, one of these physicians who unfortunately was prescribing um, lots of opioids for pain treatment. And I witnessed an entire generation of people in my hometown become addicted to opioids um, and develop an opiate use disorder. And again, I, like Tony, saw this firsthand with 
Um, the neighbor who grew up across the street from me um, had overdosed in his car across the street from my childhood home. Um, children who I babysat, who were family friends, grew up and um, have overdosed five times. Some of them are still alive, some have passed away. Um, seeing at the treatment agency I would work in, people we knew from everything from, from church to community organizations to people I went and graduated high school with, seeing how really it just ravaged um, thousands of people in this one town. Um, we had the second highest overdose rate, I believe, in all of New York State due to all the fentanyl that was in the local drug supply. And um, yeah, it was just awful witnessing this firsthand, both as an individual in the community and then as a substance use counselor. But despite all of that, um, one of the beautiful things, though, is that being a substance use counselor, I also got to see all the effective treatments that are available and that, you know, hope is there and that there is recovery and there is redemption and there is healing for both individuals and the whole community. And again, with the right effective treatments, um, again, this is, as Tony was saying, a manageable disease. And that's um, how we want this to be framed more and more so. Uh, can you tell us something about the scope of the opioid problem in Washington? Sure. So we at Washington State Healthcare Authority, along with pretty much many other um, divisions and state agencies, including Department of Health, Department of Corrections, really every state agency is addressing this. While we are making tremendous strides to face the epidemic, really what we want people to know is that this is still a real tremendous crisis that is facing every community across our state. Here's some information that we have from data that is available through Washington State Department of Health. We still know that right now there are about three overdoses, overdose deaths happening every day in Washington. And we know that of those two overdose deaths are definitely linked to opiate use. Um, we also know that there's an increasing number of deaths due to fentanyl Again, um, getting into the local drug supply all across our state. And again, fentanyl is an extremely strong opioid that sometimes can get added in and mixed in with other types of drugs, including it can sometimes be licked into um, things like methamphetamines, um, which individuals aren't even expecting there to be an opioid in their drug. Um, and then again, we do know there's also an increasing number of deaths that is happening from meth use normalizing substance use disorders as treatable medical conditions and continue to build a system of integrated care which will be able to treat the whole person regardless of what types of substances they may be on if they have mental health conditions and if they have other health conditions and we really feel like cities can play a really valuable role in helping to frame these discussions moving forward and that potentially even um, city jails can play a role in that too. That was so uh, well said. There's just a couple of things I wanted to add to it um, is considering that current kind of picture of the opioid and substance use disorder epidemic in Washington state. All of those issues are exacerbated once it's kind of projected onto the legally involved population. Um, for example, most recent research indicates that when somebody is released from a period of incarceration in a city, county jail or a state prison, uh, the risk for overdose, accidental overdose increases 40 times within the first two weeks of their release compared to a non-prison population. Uh, the reason for this is based in um, tolerance uh, reduction as uh, 
result of them being incarcerated, their tolerance goes down, but they go back to using the same amount um, of the substance they were using prior to their period of incarceration. So a lot of us have seen the results or some of the symptoms of the opioid epidemic um, you know, on, on the streets of our cities, uh, or perhaps we've heard stories in the newspaper. But um, what, what is something that you think um, the, the average uh, Washingtonian might not understand about the opioid epidemic? I think one of the things that we're still struggling with, um, both here in Washington and really as a society, is truly breaking through some of the stigma that still remains around opiate use disorder. Really, again, opiate use disorder is a lifelong medical condition. And really, uh, individuals with opiate use disorder are people, again, who are becoming physically dependent on opioids. But what does that really mean? So we know now, based on science and brain scans and years and years of technology looking into things, that if any individual were to take a high enough level of an opioid for a long period of time, if you or I were going to be taking something, we actually would become physically dependent on that opioid. And what it would do, it was actually impact our brains and change the way we actually think and your behaviors and your impact, your relationships would all be um, impacted. Um, but really, again, trying to get more awareness around opiate use disorder being a manageable disease where we actually have extremely effective treatments available for. And actually, opiate use disorder is one of the most treatable forms of substance use if individuals have access to the appropriate types of care. And now we know everyone's treatment journey looks different, but we do also know that the use of medications for the treatment of opiate use disorder is what has been proven to work best for the largest majority of individuals. And it should really be considered a first line approach to treatment for anyone who's looking to um, treat their opiate use disorder. And that doesn't matter if it's, again, um, elected officials who might be hearing this and want to echo this message. Um, again, places like city jails, if they're starting to think about, should we begin engaging in treatment options within our jails? But then also just um, anyone, if you have a loved one out there, um, knowing that, again, a medication is the first line approach to treatment for treating opiate use disorder. And I think something to, to consider and remember, and I, I think the media has done a good job of this, but basically noting the fact that with opioid use disorder and substance use disorder as a whole, um, you know, kind of like the face of individuals impacted has changed. Like it's moved from this kind of overgeneralization of uh, urban city centers to statewide. You know, like everyone um, has been has been in contact or touched by somebody, either friend themselves, a loved one. Um, who has had a substance use disorder and, and it has had a negative impact on their life. Um, and it's important to kind of acknowledge that to break down a lot of the stigma around um, addiction and break down a lot of the stigma around uh, people who need to access treatment uh, because it is ultimately an illness just like diabetes. And that's the way that we kind of frame it at the Healthcare Authority because one of the, uh, the ultimate mission statement for the Healthcare Authority is quality healthcare for every Washingtonian. And healthcare includes substance use disorder healthcare. A situation that a lot of our listeners may never have been in um, is that of being um, incarcerated with a substance use disorder. So particularly when we're talking about opioids, I wonder if you can give us any insight to the kind of human experience of being incarcerated um, when you're in the midst of um, 
of a substance use disorder, what that's like. Yeah, and uh, um, I think kind of expanding on Jessica's uh, discussion regarding um, the brain disease function of having a substance use disorder, it's helpful to, for a little bit of background um, before discussing the physical and psychological um, ailments that happen when somebody goes through withdrawals from an opioid. Um, and that is that your brain essentially stops creating its own dopamine. Um, so when somebody uses an opioid, it creates an artificial um, substance that fills the opioid receptor. And please note, I'm not a medical doctor on this, but I know enough about the background of it that when you have an artificial supply of dopamine, your body, your brain stops making natural occurring dopamine. But yeah, ultimately what happens when somebody is forced into withdrawals, which is what happens when somebody is incarcerated and they have an opioid use disorder, um, is that they go through intense physical and psychological torment um, for um, specifically the first 72 to 96 hours. And then it can actually last into weeks and months after that. It's something called post-acute withdrawal syndrome or PAUSE. Um, when they are in those first 72 hours, it is a combination of every muscle in your body aching, every tendon aching, having multiple physical symptoms such as diarrhea, vomiting, cold sweats, the inability to sleep. So you can't just sleep it off. You're actually awake while all this is happening to your body. Um, and an uncontrollable urge to kind of kick your legs. And that's where the term previously used kicking a habit came from is because of the way that you would have muscle spasms, um, uncontrollable ones when you are going through withdrawals. Um, I think it's important to note that when you're in an incarcerated environment, um, there's not a lot of comfort that you are provided while going through probably like the worst case of pneumonia and flu that you've ever had um, while not being able to do anything to make those symptoms go away. Um, after you go through those intense physical withdrawals um, for at least 72 to 96 hours, there is a period of adedonia after that. And adedonia is the inability to experience pleasure or happiness. Um, and it can last weeks where no matter what you're doing, all you feel nothing to the point where, um, you know, even something that you used to enjoy prior to developing an opioid use disorder is now at the point um, where you have no enjoyment from it. It's not fulfilling in any way. And that's one of the big things that leads to relapse. The wonderful thing about all this is that with medications for opioid use disorder, it helps somebody transition um, safely from having that active use of an illicit substance like heroin or fentanyl to um, being able to take a prescribed daily regimen of a medication that helps you um, that prevents you from having to go through those withdrawals, that allows you to continue to experience connection, which is one of the biggest things needed um, to um, find recovery, is connection with other people, connection with your community. Um, and so it's really interesting that you asked that question because um, something that can be really successful to do for somebody if they do start to experience withdrawals is to start them on a medication.
And, you know, a lot of people um, indicate, well, you know, they can't die from it. You know, somebody's going through opioid, opioid withdrawals. Um, you know, it's not like there's a risk to their life. But with the intense vomiting and diarrhea, and not to get too graphic for the, um, the, the podcast, but there is a great risk of dehydration. And there have been accounts um, across the United States of people dying while going through those withdrawals. Um, uh, just as a result of the physical impact on their body. Well, I think going back to some comments Tony had made about just the risk that presents when someone gets released, we know oftentimes that if an individual is being held at a city jail, typically they're not necessarily being held for long periods of time. So they may also be getting released from their incarceration while they're still experiencing some of the strongest of the withdrawal symptoms. Like Tony said, as while you cannot die from any of these withdrawal symptoms, any of us have ever had an extremely bad case of the flu, we surely would sit there and think like, oh, God, I feel like I'm going to die. I wish I was dead right now. Um, so, again, we know that, unfortunately, relapses do occur, like with many other chronic health conditions. Um, and, again, an individual may have be released and have no intention of actually relapsing, but circumstances may happen, life happens, and if they're not protected, um, which is something that medications for the treatment of opiate use disorder can do, um, then they're really at tremendous risk for opiate overdose. What can you tell us about um, medically assisted treatment and um, maybe a little bit of the details of, of what medications we're talking about and uh, who that they're a good, a good fit for? So again, medications for the treatment of opiate use disorder are the first line approach to treatment for any individual that has opiate use disorder. There are three different medications that we're talking about when we reference this. So we'll kind of go through them one by one. The first one is methadone. So a lot of people have heard of that. It's a medication that's been used for decades here in the United States to treat opiate use disorder. And really what this means is if an individual is able to take a prescribed, um, measured and monitored amount of this medication, it will help them prevent, uh, it will help prevent them from having both opiate withdrawal symptoms and cravings for opioids, and it will not necessarily give an individual the euphoria that they might experience if they were taking illicit opioids or opioids in really high amounts. So um, again, it manages cravings and withdrawal symptoms. It lasts for about 24 hours in the body of anyone who's taking it. And typically it's something that can only be provided from a certain type of treatment setting called opiate treatment program. But um, opiate treatment programs are able to partner with other types of settings, including jails, to help provide this medication to anyone who may be incarcerated. Um, the second medication class that we'll talk about is buprenorphine-containing products. So buprenorphine is also more commonly thought of as things like Suboxone or Subutex. You might be more familiar with those terms. So we consider this a partial opiate agonist medication. So what this means, again, is much like methadone, it is chemically similar to other types of opioids. So it will prevent withdrawal symptoms and cravings. It oftentimes also in one formulation, which is Suboxone, it's a combined um, formulation. It's actually combined with naloxone, which is a blocker effect. So actually it can also prevent individuals from one, 
um, having an overdose if they were to take more opioids on top of it. And in some instances, it can actually cause the individual to go into withdrawal if they use opioids on top of it. So it works, again, both as um, helping to prevent withdrawal and cravings, but then also as a kind of a deterrent in some ways for relapsing. This medication also you would be able to take orally. Um, it lasts also in the body for around 24 hours. And this medication can be prescribed by any prescriber. So it could be a nurse, it could be a physician's assistant, it could be a doctor. And then the last type of medication is naltrexone, or commonly known as Vivitrol. It can be taken orally, but it is most commonly provided, uh, I believe in Washington State and nationwide through an injectable format. So this is different from the other two medications and that it is not considered an agonist medication. So really what this is, is it just is an opioid blocker. I wonder for those uh, city leaders that are listening to this, who've noticed that in their own communities, they have, um, they have this problem and uh, are looking for resources to address it, whether or not they have their own city jail, what, what resources would you point them to? Sure. So there's an amazing resource that we want everyone to know about. It's the Washington State Recovery Helpline. So the Washington State Recovery Helpline is a 24-hour-a-day, seven-day-a-week telephone hotline where anyone can call and ask for resources for either substance use disorder treatment, mental health treatment, or again, problem and pathological gambling treatment, as well as they actually have a whole set of resources about just where to find these medications for the treatment of opiate use disorder. They also have an amazing website where they have almost a Google Maps type feature where you can type in where you're located, what city you're in, what zip code, what's your address, and it will actually tell you where all the um, methadone, buprenorphine, and naltrexone providers in our state are. So you can find the place that's closest to you. You can have um, individuals call in and talk with trained individuals. They'll help you find a place that will take your insurance um, that, again, is geographically close to you and can offer you the types of treatment that you might be looking for. Great. Jessica, can you tell us the name of that resource one more sure. time? Sure. So it's the Washington State Recovery Helpline. You can find it in a variety of ways. You can go to www www.wa.recoveryhelpline.org or also call 1-866-789-1511 or you can also just Google Washington State Recovery Helpline and it should be one of the first results that comes up. Thank you. And we can put those resources in the notes of this podcast as well. And then, you know, applying that towards the uh, the criminal justice setting in city, county and uh, city, county jails and state prisons, um, a lot of the initial research coming out of Rhode Island, which was the first state that implemented medications uh, statewide in their uh, jail and prison system, is a significant reduction in overdose deaths when somebody is released back into the community as well as improved relationships between correctional staff and incarcerated individuals. I'm glad you mentioned that. It's uh, For a lot of our listeners, they might be thinking of it as a cost to include these medically assisted treatments is, is simply a cost. But as you point out, this is a potentially a way of, of reducing cost of uh, recidivism and that kind of thing. And does that naloxone, does that ever go by the name Narcan? Yes, thank you so much for saying that. You're right, Narcan is the more commonly known um, name for naloxone. But yes, they're the exact same medication. Um, cities can also support having drug take-back locations being co-located at places like police departments or, again, other city buildings so that there's places for the community to provide Medicaid, or I'm sorry, to drop off medications 
Um, so they're not at risk of being misused or abused potentially if they're left within a household. A lot of things that people sometimes we don't know is that when someone's incarcerated, it actually freezes their insurance benefits, especially if they're on public in a form of public insurance such as Medicaid or Medicare. And it's often cheaper and more effective to treat individuals prior to incarceration when you can still use their benefits as opposed to incarcerating them and then having to use city taxpayer resources to pay for that treatment. So if there are ways to support diversion efforts, such as use of therapeutic and treatment courts in um, your cities, also maybe potentially having things like law enforcement assisted diversion, where instead of an individual being booked and charged, they may be given an opportunity to be remain on community release and actually attend treatment. Um, those could be huge cost savings. Thank you very much. All right. For the second half of our podcast, I have Sharon Swanson with us here, a government relations advocate with AWC. And she's going to give us a little bit of insight on uh, how AWC is uh, involved in this particular issue of medically assisted treatment. Welcome, Sharon. Thank you, Brian. Happy to be here. So um, for our listeners, can you tell us how many jails we have that are city-owned in the state of Washington? Yes, Brian. We have 14 city-owned jail facilities in Washington, and they range from as small as the one in Oak Harbor, which has 12 beds and was built in 1954, to Kent, which has 98 beds, um, and Sunnyside, which has 97 beds. Okay. And in those 14 facilities, how many incarcerated individuals uh, do we have at any given time? Well, when you add up all the different bed space for all 14 facilities, it equals up to 722 beds. So if we're maxed out, we could have as many as 722 people in jail facilities, city-owned jail facilities. Gotcha. So in these city-owned jail facilities, there's a maximum capacity of 722. Now, out of those... um, you know, potential maximum of 722. Can you give us any idea of how many of them might have an opioid uh, use disorder when they're incarcerated? Sure. And the information we have is somewhat anecdotal because um, we rely a lot on the individual who's coming through the jail facility to report out as to what their addictive history is, either at the time they're coming through or historically. So, Sometimes they're not in the best mood to want to cooperate, or sometimes they're concerned about disclosing things to law enforcement. But with that caveat, uh, going around traveling to the different jail facilities and talking to a lot of people involved in in the jail corrections world, they estimate 80% of the people who come through the doors have some form of an addiction. And of that 80%, 60% of those folks have opioids involved in their addictive history. So whether they're currently addicted to opiates or that's part of what they're addicted to, up to 60% of those individuals are suffering at the time they come through the doors. So, Sharon, we've got this um, this number of people. Um, perhaps it's over half of the potentially 722 people that could be incarcerated in uh, Washington City jails at any time. Um, if one of those individuals enters with a substance use disorder, what obligations do those city jails have towards those individuals? Mm-hmm. Oh, that's a good question. And it's um, a bit of a nuanced answer, but I will answer it this way. So if you have a diagnosed medical condition, so you've sought treatment in when you're in the community um, and you're under uh, a regimen to address your addiction, so you're being prescribed medications to address an addiction, then the jail has a legal obligation to continue that treatment when you're incarcerated. It'd be the same thing as if you were a diabetic 
and you are reliant on insulin. You get arrested for whatever reason. You're now in our custody. We need to give you your medications to continue to address your medical condition. And substance use disorder is considered a medical condition when you have sought treatment and you've been diagnosed with an addiction. Um, the majority of people who come through or who are incarcerated for any period of time, um, a lot of them suffer from addiction that hasn't been diagnosed, either they haven't had an opportunity to address it, maybe they don't have insurance for whatever reason. So they're coming through the doors of a jail and within a very short window of time, they're gonna start suffering from um, a detox, whether that's a, you know physical, mental detox from whatever substances they've been using. So the answer to that question is that we, our jails need to address the physical ramifications of their detox. As you heard from Jessica and Tony, that's going to be, uh, you know, a lot of dehydration issues. Um, they're going to be in physical discomfort. They're going to be in psychological discomfort. Um, but there was legislation passed in 2019, Substitute Senate Bill 5380, which had a lot to do with how the state was going to address the opioid crisis, but specifically for city jails, there was a, an aspect of the bill that requires that all jail facilities, whether they're city, county, or correctional facility, provide medication-assisted treatment to people coming from the community who were under treatment. We, can, we maintain their treatment in the jail. There was a second part of that, which 30 days prior to someone being released from a facility, if it's deemed medically necessary, we would need to start them on medically-assisted treatment because we know the rate of, a, of overdoses for people who have um, been away from their active addiction, they go out into the community. If they're not addressing that addiction through a program, then the chances are they're gonna go out, they're gonna use, and it's 40% more likely that they will overdose. And there was a third piece to the legislation which requires the jails to make reasonable efforts to directly connect that person with a provider in the community to help them with their addiction. So there were three prongs under the bill. They were mandates. However, we were able to negotiate um, some language that said that those mandates took effect subject to appropriated funds. The legislature didn't appropriate money for the cities or the counties to do this. So what we're struggling to do is, this is obviously an ongoing crisis. Our jail staff deal with this every single day, every single shift. People are coming into their facilities actively addicted, and they're struggling to find the resources to address medication-assisted treatment. So, Sharon, if I understand right, uh, there is some clarity on if someone enters a facility and they have an existing medically diagnosed issue, whether that be uh, opioid use disorder or something like diabetes, we know that we're responsible for continuing their care. Yes. There is lack of clarity at this point on someone who's entered the facility and may have one of these conditions, but it's not yet diagnosed. So Sharon, for that second category, what are we asking for from the legislature? Well, what we're asking for uh, is resources. Um, and there's a lot of things that we know about medication-assisted treatment. We know that it helps individuals. We know how many beds we have available in city-owned jails. But there are a lot of things we don't know. And so I, I believe that this is going to be a multi-year conversation with the legislature. And so what I'm trying to focus on this legislative session, it's a short session, 60 days. It's a supplemental budget session, which means there's not going to be a lot of uh, messing with the budget. Um, what I'm trying to do is tee up the conversation, focus on what we don't know. We don't know how many people exactly come through our doors who need opiate treatment. 
we don't know where the gaps are in our communities because one of the provisions of the, the legislation requires that we make reasonable efforts to find providers in the communities so that if someone is addressing their addiction, they leave our jails, they need to go someplace to supplement their treatment so that we can continue to build on what we've started. Um, we also don't know how many staff this is going to take. Our jails, as I said earlier, are very small, which means they don't have a large number of staff. A lot of our facilities have part-time medical providers who come in some days of the week, not every day of the week. If you have someone coming through the doors in, in active withdrawal, they're going to need to be assessed. They're going to need to have uh, treatment options presented to them. They're going to need to be monitored. Um, so those are some of the things that we need to get our arms around. How big is this? How much is it going to cost? What are the revenue options that we have so that we can offset the cost? And so what we're asking for from the legislature this year is pretty straightforward. We're asking for a $50,000 budget proviso to allow the SCORE jail facility, which is a regional jail facility with six city partners, um, and it's located in Des Moines. They've been providing medication-assisted treatment for several years. They've been very active in reaching out to jails and helping answer questions. Um, we're asking for $50,000 to fund a study so that they can help us understand, um, you know, how do we serve this population? There's a unique aspect to city jails, which is that people, the average length of stay is as short as three days and as long as 11 days. Now, that's an average, but that's a very short window of time to get someone in there to assess them, start them on a treatment program, and make those efforts to reach out to the communities. SCORE only has misdemeanors, so they have that short window of time. That's who their population is. So they're, I believe, in the best position to help us get some of this data, help us understand how much it's going to cost, what is it going to look like in each of our facilities, given that we have 12 beds to 100 beds. And then we can go to the legislature next year with some data that says this is how much it's going to cost, here's what we are doing, here's what we can do, and here's where we need you to partner with us whether that's giving us an investment in resources, whether it's making some policy changes, um, helping us you know, find some grant programs, working with us so that we can work with the federal government to allow Medicaid to continue when someone is incarcerated for a period of time because this population, a lot of these folks struggling with addiction, struggling with uh, mental health issues, they're on Medicaid, they're on Medicare. But with the moment you come through the jailhouse doors, you become the city's responsibility. And this is an extremely expensive, important, but an extremely expensive service that we're being mandated to provide. So Sharon, for those who are interested, who may have city jails and who have an interest in this issue, how can they get involved in our legislative priority? I would ask that they get involved by contacting their legislators and advocate for funding for city jails to provide medication-assisted treatment. Thanks for listening. For more information, visit our website at wacities.org. The AWC City Voice podcast is a production of AWC, where our mission is to serve our members through advocacy, education, and services. This podcast was recorded and edited by Mitch Netzer. It was produced by Brian Dascom with help from Sharon Swanson. Brian, signing off. <laughs> <laughs>